fix it however you like, but not between the two I know, of us. I know. Uh, now let's check it. Yeah. Well, I I'm used to speak like that. That's amazing. Great. About this volume, volume of voice, but you can't rely on it. Sometimes I'm talking a bit softer, a bit louder, because I am very much alive. Okay, I will, I will check it then. Yeah, great. Let's begin with the feature as it is. So, where it all started? What does the word feature actually mean, if you can tell me. Do you mean now the historical beginning of feature, or do you mean the beginning of the feature conference? Well, uh, now the feature like feature, and okay. then we will move to... Okay. Feature started in the 20s in the United Kingdom. And as it is always when something new starts, a new movement, a new way of, in this context of programming, when radio came, a new medium, it collected immediately a type of human beings I would call the adventurers. The ones being made to go for the new things, okay? Most of them came from the newspaper. And in the newspaper, in the 20s of last century in the United Kingdom, you said, I feature something if you made it a bit more important, a bit more bigger. This line of understanding you still, feel, you, you still find in film. Up to the very day, the main film is very often called the feature film. Okay, so feature means a kind of focus and a bit more background. When I lived in London in the 60s of last century, I wrote to Lance Sieveking. He was one of the very first pioneers of the 20s in London linked to BBC. Of course, he was retired, I was a young man, and he answered and said, yes, you are welcome, I'm living in the north of England, and there we can talk about the beginning of the feature. I traveled there by train. Lance Sieveking collected me at the station, and let me say, a typical English country gentlemen. What does that mean? It means the class of good material, but a bit neglected. Yes? Mm -hmm. Not elegant, but in depth, quite, let me say, demanding. Not somebody who is taking on something because it's just next to you in the morning, it's homespun, it's the right hat, and whatsoever. So we went to his house, and, of course, I asked him, like, you know, Mr. Sieveking, please explain to me what is a feature. We are doing them in Germany since quite a number of years, but nobody really knows the exact meaning of it. And he said, Mr. Brown, 
And you must imagine now, the two of us, yes? I was a slim German guy, and he here you, and you, you had there the old English gentleman, and he, he said to me, please follow me into the garden. So, a little garden. We make the tour, and he said, the news, the news is Lance Sieverking and Leo Braun from Germany are meeting in to talk about the feature. That's the news. But now I explain to you how the feature begins. I describe in the feature how I am looking like, a bit how I am addressed. Maybe I make a remark on the voice and then I put the contrary next to me, that German fellow. I mean, it's not long ago that the two of us have been in war against each other. Okay? And how you look like and how you... That's a feature. That means it enlarges the beginning, the facts, into the range of impressions. Describing more and make the program more touchable by that, yes? And then he said, now we even take into that a political dimension. I have been shot down in the First World War being in an airplane in the sky of Germany. And I have no good memories about that. And now you are here that young bloke from Germany, I said, I was too young having been a soldier. You see, that's a feature. Now it works. Now it becomes a story. Yes? And... Uh, I'm sorry, just... Is it... Could we, it's not open, the window. It's just... It's not open, no. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's for a thesis. It's not for a recording. Okay. Um, and then he said... Suddenly, in our feature about our talk about feature, we are now in a juxtaposition. The German, the English, the war. And now he said, what is a happy end? The happy end is that I feel still very close to the feature. And I am happy that you are coming from another country to investigate about something we have invented. And I hope, the torch, that you are taking the torch now and carry it into tomorrow. That's a happy end. And this is a feature. The first feature, like called feature, it was made in Britain or like BBC or... In BBC, in BBC. And the very first feature was done by Lance Sieverking in 26 or something like that. It was called The Wheel of Time and it was facts and poet, poetry. Yes? So they were experimenting and this troupe of the beginners, we are a bit considered within the BBC like gypsies. Yes? 
the strange ones, the entrepreneurs, okay? So I thought, I'm now still in the 60s in London, last century, I thought I need a second interview and I needed my Val Gilgood, V-A-L, then G-I-E-L-G-U-D, Val Gilgood. And the Gilgoods have been a very famous theater family in the United Kingdom. And so I wrote to Val Gilgood, would you be so kind to give me an interview about the beginning of the feature? That was not easy to get his yes. And I was asked to come into his club. And this was a most distinguished club. So there was a quite clear situation about him, the famous man and me, the little German, yes, asking for an interview. But Val Gilgert gave to the feature people the decisive second step. I explained that to you. In 29, 30, now already the medium of radio existed since seven years, okay? There, but let me say, was an energy to put it into administrative cubicles. This kind of program belongs here, becomes a department, here's another department, etc. And the feature people had no department. They were just pioneers running around. And Val Gilgood, imagine that, was asked by the BBC to take over in 29 or 30 the art production of BBC, radio drama, etc. And he was only 30 years old. Yes, how daring. So Val Gilgut, coming out of that no noble family, became now a very important man. And I go back into the club now, where I'm sitting with Val Gilgut, and of course I asked him that, What was the decisive switch for the development of feature? And he said, our director general, of course he didn't say director general, he called him by his first name, yes? He said so and so, was asking me to come in for a talk and he said to me, and I quote him now, he said to me, these feature people might be quite useful But somehow they are a nuisance always with all their annuities. If you like to take them, take them, or we skip it. So it was for the feature in the United Kingdom, the hour of destiny. And Will Gilgood took them. And he called them the little sister of radio drama. And then our interview finished with his a bit bitter remark saying, and later on it became the bigger sister of radio drama. What does that mean? I'm going now to the next step of development. 
we had war. And in the war, the feature had an enormous impact on the British audience because they did features like radar, radar, okay? A thriller. Radar was offered to Hitler in the war and he misjudged the importance of it. And so the British scientists became faster. And now Germany, United Kingdom, the Channel. Germany had already occupied France. The German aircrafts were situated in airports in France. Got into the sky, moved to the United Kingdom, bombs, etc. And immediately tried to destroy the British airports. Okay? Then the British aircraft couldn't get up. In the sky there are enemies, but down there they are like flies. flies. But with radar something very important happens. Now they have radar. And they see, by radar, the Germans are starting now. Okay? And they keep their aircrafts on the floor to the last minute. Now they start full of petrol. And the Germans have already half of their petrol used for that long flight. You see? And this made the victory of the last war in the sky because they had more petrol, <laughs> could fight longer and could follow the Germans across the channel still having a supply of petrol. Such a feature. Yes? Or they did shortly after the war the death of Mussolini and they asked the feature makers to go to Italy and to follow the last weeks of Mussolini. And they found out, at, this, at that time nobody knew, that he was hanged by the Italians with his mistress. And you could, they brought even a picture hanging with the feet in the air like cadavers. TV was not invented at that time, and Feature offered the big documentary stories, well written, okay? And there is one man linked to it. I have to give to you the name. I'm always forgetting his name because I've never met him. But it's the one I most admire in the history of the feature. That was the first departmental head of the BBC feature. Yes? I look it up. I have it here. It's a shame that I always forget this name. Lawrence Gilliam. Uh. 
And he made out of the British feature from the beginning a kind of a greenhouse. You know what a greenhouse is? A lot of light, warmth, and everything grows rapidly. Yes? And he made the most smashing productions, and he even tried the live recording, for which he had no equipment at that time. But he tried, yes? And he made two things, and there's a big message in that. The feature people and the radio drama people, I put them now into one basket in front of you. Yes? The radio drama people are more artistic. They have more sophisticated means for production. And the feature people are a bit more realistic. They go more for journalistic research, for the subject, for the artists. The form, the form might be more important than the content. It's a bit radical what I'm saying, yes? For the feature people, the content is more important than the form. Is that understood? But now it comes. Lawrence Gilliam used the potential of the artistic people in that big department composed of radio drama plus radio feature in the BBC. One unity, okay? And now the feature people came in with the hot material and they took the best producers from the radio drama side and this way you got a beautiful mix that was very convincing, okay? Clear? I give you one or two other examples because I spent, like you, many months in the archives in the BBC listening to productions. And what Lawrence Gilliam succeeded in was to have a team of writers, writer-producers, producers, which were tough journalists and even poets. You see? So one of the outstanding poets of that time, Louis Magnice, was in the team of Lawrence Gilliam. And the best journalistic guy of that was in that team. You see? And that, of course, was a greenhouse where lots of things came out and they had ideas. The first highway in the United Kingdom was the M1. Letter M, one. And this he made in the form of an opera. And you could hear the fellow workers, the workers, you could hear singing, and today we moved 100 tons of sand, like that, yes? I mean, it was not really my cup of tea, but to dare to do it, it was absolutely great. Lawrence Gilliam is the one I admire. And I never managed to meet him. We overlapped only for some years because he died very young. 
and he died, as they say, because he was hit in the heart by the big change pressed on him by the TV. Because BBC, a very competent organization, immediately reduced the radio side, good producers went to TV, and Lawrence Gilliam was decreasing with his team. Yes? And then the deadly blow was, at last they said, and now we split them. The journalistic guys of your department go to current affairs, to talks, and the artists go to radio drama. And that was the end. You get that? So and that's, that's very interesting. We are always very touched if something great ends. But the Egyptian culture ended. The Chinese culture and Yes, it's like that. And then it's a mix of personal and realistic circumstances. And then suddenly it's over. Your question. Do you have this experience of working for television like you tried it yourself? Yes, 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 yes. People, writers, producers, it's strange to say that. And it's very much against the development of today. They are mostly only gifted in one line. They are visual or they are acoustically talented. Yes? Me being head of radio features in Berlin, I had 55 writer-producers. Huge team. Yes? Only five of them went to TV. Out of these five, three came back. Now I come to myself. I'm sitting in front of TV, I'm looking at football, and I don't see what's happening. I had a very good friend, Klaus Lindemann, and he had always to explain to me what's just happening, because I don't see things. I hear them. Yes? There's no explanation for that. And when you get this capability to think in sound, to build in sound, to follow the inner melody of things, yes? Then you should, then it is your road and you should go it. So, Mr. Brown, did you do TV programs? Yes, three. And then I gave it up. The last one was in London on Madame Tussauds. That's the wax figure cabinet, yes? And I was sent over. I had an advantage of two days to write the script. Two days! Imagine that. And then the German team came over to shoot the film. And I had some marvelous ideas. The first thing I was very much disturbed by is a feature maker 
is a single person mostly. He is still mostly somebody like a medieval handicraft. I compare him now with being a carpenter. He is looking for the wood. He is cutting the wood. He is drying the wood. Then he is shaping the wood. Then he makes a table out of it. And then he even sells the table. And me, in London, as a TV person, I had behind me 15 persons. 15! It made me mad. The camera guy, high caliber, very good indeed, had an assistant. And the assistant did not clean the lens properly. Yes, there is a bit of glass in the camera, in front of the camera, and there was a thread. And this thread was dancing. It was a very light fever, and a little bit of draft or wind, it moved. And in Berlin it came, we discovered that we could forget about 25 to 30 percent of the material because of that bloody thread. That was for me the end. I was considering myself, I mean, well, I was quite successful, I was considering myself being a talent, and now I was reduced by a thread by an assistant. First point. Second point. In the wax figure cabinet, of course, I made the, the make of a person in wax. I followed that. And I took Macmillan. Macmillan at that time was the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And they were just doing Macmillan. And it happens like that. He is asked into the wax. He is measured. His complete body is done in plaster of Paris, gips in Germany. Yes, exact measurements. Then they come. Then he has to give to them his original suits. Okay. Socks, shoes. But now at last comes the head. And the head is done nowadays and at my time also by shooting camera work at least two days. Thousands of photos. And then out of that they are beginning to mould, to shape the head. The hair is sewed in one after the other. But it's still dead. I'm explaining to you my film, okay? I all, I have covered that. It's now, let me say, five minutes of the film. But there is still somebody in a suit with a head that doesn't speak. And now came in, it was a German, the specialist for the eyes. I don't know if you have seen that when in the noble families, they had fox knives made of silver, and they have been in big etuis. 
Yes? So you open the Edwise, and there was velvet in there, blue velvet, and then you had forks, spoons, and whatsoever, and you took them out. And that German eye specialist came in with three large Edwise, opened them, and you had one eye next to the other. I've never seen that again. And of course he knew exactly the color and the shape of Macmillan's eye. And then I could follow that with my camera, how he, with pointed fingers, took an eye and then the other eye, and now it comes. With his hand, he entered through the throat, the head of Macmillan. In his pointed hand, he had the eye, and so he came into the hollow eye from behind. And he put in the eye, and then the other eye, and it still didn't live. And then from the inside, he twisted it a bit. He gave it a little angle, and suddenly, suddenly, the head, Macmillan, was sitting in front of you. And I did that film, okay? It's true what happened now. In Berlin, I mean, we have been at that time just 20 years after the Lost War. The TV department of that station at that time said to me, we can't do that. How can you dare to do that? That man is prime minister of the United Kingdom, and you make a film how to make his body out of wax and his head impossible. We have to cut that down. It was my second blow. And the third blow was beautiful. A wax figure is living for about, let me say, five years, ten years, twenty years, following the importance of that person in real life. And when that importance is faded, then the wax figure has to die. And of course I wanted to see that. So they take off the coat. Yes? They hammer the body made of plaster of Paris. And I thought, whom can I take for that? Or do you know whom I took? The Pope. I took one of the old popes, still known, but we had a new pope in the meantime, so the old pope. Okay. I took the pope. And at last there is only the head. And the wax of the head is an expensive material. It's a very special wax. So the head and the eyes are taken out. The hair is taken off. And now it's just the wax. But it's still the head of the Pope. And they put it into a bucket of boiling wax and I followed that with a camera how that head made of wax was turning around and was melting away it was a beautiful image 
how times pass, change, even greatness becomes less and less and disappears. TV in Berlin, how can you do that? The Pope. Yes, <laughs> we have to cut down that. So for me, I said, never TV again. Where do you find inspiration for your features? What topics are interesting for you? I'm looking for sources of energy. I'm living in London and I'm flying to the pre-Italia. At that time it was the Olympic Games of radio. Okay? And sitting in the aircraft I see an article about the first animal machine, the chicken. It's written by, I think, an American author, because the Americans have been the most advanced ones to change a chicken into a kind of an automat. And I knew. I have never been interested in chicken before, yes, or in agriculture phenomenons. I knew this is my road, the first animal machine, okay? I wrote, still in London, and being very much involved in London in the first experiments on stereotechnique, I wrote to my station in Berlin I want to do the chicken in stereo. And I got a reply, I quoted to you, a chicken in stereo means gak, 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 from left to right. It doesn't make sense. I did it. And I insisted, because I had a very good standing here in Berlin, even living in London, I insisted in getting a sound engineer next to me, and I insisted to do recordings for about one week, yes, traveling from one eggplant, from one breeding station to the next. I don't want to get lost now in the chicken story, that's alone one day of telling you, yes? But we had the first mobile equipment. It was nothing very demanding. And I must take one step back. When I started, a mobile equipment was like a little suitcase. 20 by 30, not more, deep, maybe 15. We called it the Gondi, brownish. And you had a kerbel at the side, a handle, where you had to pull it like the old gramophone. And the tape you had in that Gondi machine, where well, it was doing eight minutes. But after six minutes, the spring giving the energy inside was getting a bit weaker. And then the speaking person lost. The speed became darker and darker. And then you had to try 
to give it a new energy. And the same machine in, in, in the United Kingdom was called a midget. Same size, but green leather, not in Germany brown leather, green leather. And the midget had the same disadvantages, of course. But then, Uher, U-H-E-R, Uher, the first maker of mobile equipment was Uher. And Gründlich did one, very early, I don't know if, at least Gründlich doesn't exist anymore. But we had, that's the point, primitive equipment, not being designed for mobile recording, but being designed for, let me say, inside recording, but being a bit mobile. So I had no batteries doing it. So I needed electrical current. So I needed a cable, and I had a cable of 100 meter in my equipment. And then I had to go for a plug. And I put that plug in, then I had a range of mobility of 100 meter. And with our sound engineer, Lala was his name. And he was here in Berlin, the specialist for symphonic recording. When Karajan came, came, it was Lala doing it. And Lala was with, me, was with me on trip for chicken. But Karajan's Lala was my rescue. <clears throat> Because when you come into a chicken plant, it's like a, bot a thermos. You know what thermos is? Thermos is a bottle where you can keep liquid hot. Yes? They are like thermos bottles, horizontal thermos bottles. And in there are maybe 10,000 chicken. You have ventilation, yes? And when you move in, you must not wear any fur because then they think you are a carnivore or something like Any panic, any excitement happening because of recording might mean 1,000 eggs less that day. So you go in very careful indeed. And now something beautiful happens. The invention of stereo, of acoustical power, so what I did was, I started the chicken production in mono, giving a little text of maybe one minute to the voice of an uncle, of a friendly person, saying how nice on the farmyard and the sun is shining and there is a chicken and there are some other ones and they cackle and they scratch a bit in the sand. So it was an absolutely traditional image. And then I had very cold technical voices saying nonsense. A dozen of chicken, 12,000, 50,000, 1 million. And then I moved into that thermos bottle with 10,000 chicken in stereo technique and that was overwhelming. It was like acoustical Hollywood when suddenly 
you come out of a little point and you make it a pan-visionic impression. But the decisive thing, the really decisive thing was, with that technique, I could touch the audience much stronger. I could, so to speak, with my arm in my hand, come out of the loudspeaker, close to the person and even pull it into that universe of sound, by the power of the sound. That was an example why I choose the subject. During this recording, were you inspired by something abroad? Because, you know, stereophonics, it was in England before that, wasn't it? Like yes, but <clears throat> it was in England only in first steps. I describe you almost the very first one. It was a radio drama on Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is coming into the house of the gangsters. He opens a door at the right side. You hear at the right, the door is open now. He moves into the middle of the room. So I have a movement, acoustical movement now, from the right side to the middle. In the distance, because stereo is depicting space, range, in the distance I hear from the right side the gangsters are approaching. Sherlock, in that production, still in the middle of the stereophonic uh, stage, says, I have to hide myself. He walks to the left and says, I hide myself in this cupboard. I hear that. He moves into that cupboard and he closes the door. Now we know. Door is at the right. Sherlock Holmes is hidden in that cupboard at the left. The door at the right side opens. It's a very simple understanding of stereo technique. The door opens. The gangsters are coming in and they talk to each other. I have the feeling somebody says he might be somebody in here, maybe in that cupboard. Oh, the audience is getting afraid for Sherlock. And then comes something marvelous. He says, I'm looking up, but the other one says, don't do that, I do it with a knife. And he says, I just throw the knife into the cupboard now. And he said that at the door, right, okay? And then he says, I throw it now. And then in the middle, they take a whip. So you get the illusion, the knife has passed now, and then it goes into the cupboard and makes in the wood, a vibration. So this, at that time, was stereo technique. Experimenting, yes? And the really outstanding man was Raymond Rakes. Raymond Rakes, he did a production radio drama, The Foundling, with a little girl going into church, finding there a tramp. The tramp must not go into the church and sleep there. And so he tells the little girl, he is not a tramp, he is God.
And that is the basic energy in that story. And that little girl is jumping uh, on the pavement. He is go she is going into the church. The atmosphere is changing. It's very spacey now. The uh, god on the floor is talking differently than the little girl standing a bit upside. That was very tricky. That was very tricky indeed. And of course, I interviewed Raymond, asked him to explain, etc. And the basic answer is, you must be capable to think in movement, space and sound. It's like a painter seeing colors, knowing how to use brushes and whatsoever. And at that time, and that's the answer to your question, at that time, I understood in London that the new era of radio is by that technical offer of stereo. And I did my very first thing. You asked for the technical state of BBC at that time. And I have done, together with BBC, the first radio doc in stereo technique. It was based on the changing of the guard in front of Buckingham Palace. There you have the old uniforms and they march in that strange style of British guards. Yes? And I persuaded BBC to come there with a recording van and to do the things twice, binaural. Because there was no stereo technique equipment. So they could just do it with a technical trick, to do it twice with a little delay. It's not necessary to understand that, but that answers your questions. What was the state of development in the BBC. Yeah, great. Well, can we hear that recording somewhere? Is it in Yes, yes, yes. It must be still somewhere in our archives. And then, it was 66, I decided I go back to Berlin. Because with the, let me say, very nice support of the BBC. I couldn't really drive on the development. I needed Berlin. And in Berlin, that is something important to know, they had started with stereotechnique in 38. 38. The war didn't have even started in 38. Because the mag magnetic tape had been invented. And the magnetic tape was an offer to try stereotechnique. So what did they do? They recorded concerts with two mics being in a certain angle, XY, X, Y, XY, we say, yes? And so they had that symphony or whatever it was in a space. The music didn't change, okay? It was differently recorded and you have been capable to listen to it 
in a space. It was very, very different if you listen to something in mono, a big symphony orchestra, bah, let me say 100 instruments, okay? Or if you are allowed to listen to it in the natural space of that concert hall. But the music didn't change. It was just the technique of recording that changed. Clear? Yeah. And these very first stereo productions, one of them was by Karajan, extremely young. Here in this station in Berlin were archived just experimental stuff. Then the war started. Yes, of course, you do not experiment anymore. And the the joke is, there was only one person in Germany being capable to listen to stereo recordings, because he was the only one having at home a stereo set. Josef Goebbels. So it was a pioneer deed, but nothing for normal people. Okay? And the war now is over, it's 45, the building is burning, the Russians are moving in, and the sound engineer responsible for these early recordings called Krüger. But his nickname was Krüger Krüger because of stereo. Krüger Krüger dashed into the burning house, runs into the archive, Imagine how passionate takes under his arm some of these enormous, important tapes, but enormous, important only because of technical reasons, and rescues them. And that Krüger was a man I met when I came back from London. And when I came back from London, and my boss had said, chicken and stereo, that's nonsense from left to right. Krüger, Krüger, in the meantime, head of techniques, was very much interested that I go on. You see? And so, let me say, we had a new center of radio development in the world, here in Berlin, driving in big steps, year by year, the development of stereo technique and giving to radio a new era of listening to it. Can we hear somewhere these rescued tapes? Do you have it somewhere? Mm -hmm. um, and is it possible, like for me, for studying purposes to hear or to use somehow these recordings or the recording of the changing guards, you know, uh, from Buckingham Palace? We have to look for that if they are still in the archives. Mm -hmm. Because that would be great, you know, that would be amazing if we can listen to, or, or so you have all these tapes, Krieger, Krieger, <laughs> rescued. So. Yes, but they, of course, um, they became, they got the stamp not ever to be cancelled. Historical values. So they are still here. It's about five tapes, I think. One was Karajan, one was Giesiking, a big pianist, etc. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, I got lost now. 
Yeah, great. So, so yeah, uh, we'll look for this after. But now, um, yeah, so when I asked you, like, where do you find inspirations, you, you told me that, yeah, you, you saw this newspaper, uh, but... No, I found energy. Oh, yeah, you found energy, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what does the topic need to have, you know, for you to... Energy, okay, but, you know, then you did this feature about hyenas, then you did... It was what, not what about hyenas. Yeah. It was about the African night. That was the energy. I went to a Prietaria and found a production about lions. And this production was very remarkable because the understanding of, li of hyenas was idiotic. Absolutely idiotic. But the sound, that giggling, that excitement, interested me very much, so I went to the zoo in Berlin and talked to the director of the zoo. And I said to him, I have here a production where a little bit of hyenas are to be listened to, but it doesn't convince me in the least. They even say they are hermaphrodites. That means they have two sexes, and that's why they are so happy and giggling. And he said to me, there's one scientist, a Dutch fellow, Kruk, K-R-W-K, Kruk. And Kruk is living in the Serengeti, and he has just published a revolution on hyenas. Hyenas are not carcass eaters. They are powerful hunters. And they are hunting in the night, especially in dawn or in dusk. That was my subject. Now I sensed it. The African night, absolutely dark. You can't see anything, okay? And now, whoo, whoa, yes, it. And that's why I said to my station, I've never been before in Africa, never before any knowledge about lions, hyenas, or whatsoever. I said to him, I'm going now to Africa. And I was a freelancer. That means I lived always out of my own pocket, out of my fees. Karl-Heinz Lala, with the chickens, he was on staff. Yes? So for me it was quite always a risk to do such a big production. I have been sitting on the chickens 10 months of work. 10 months. To investigators, to go there, to compose it later on, yes? That's a good uh, keyword, to compose. You don't put your material together, you compose it somehow. It's an acoustical work, okay? And so I went to Africa. I had written to Krug, and Krug answered me. And he said, we are meeting at the edge of the Gorogoro crater. Where is the Gorogoro crater? Nowadays, everybody knows that at that time. So 
we flew to Nairobi. We hired a Land Rover, a big one, and we put into that equipment. With equipment, I mean um, tools, an axe, a hammer, things like that, water bags, and supplies for about three weeks, because I had exactly three weeks of recording. <clears throat> and then the two of us <laughs> drove to Nairobi, to a meeting at the edge of the Gorogoro crater. But Teresa, now please be attentive. My engineer was Dieter Grossmann. And Dieter Grossmann, really an expert, Dieter Grossmann had thought already in Berlin to take with him a lot of foam rubber. What do you need that foam rubber for in Africa, he said? To protect the mics against wind and whatsoever. We don't know what we need it for, but I have it. So we are driving on that dusty road into the direction of Nairobi, and I see at my right side, at the edge of the road, big poles of bamboo. From here to there, I said to him, stop it, please. Without knowing what I want to do with it, I collected these long poles of bamboo and we took it on our roof. And with foam rubber and bamboo, that became the essential devices of recording. Why? Do you want me to continue? Yeah, continue. Okay. Why? A hyena is sometimes sleeping two and a half days in one go. Especially they sleep in daytime. Okay? So you can't see them. One is lying there, one is lying there. And we were living in a tent on a little slope. Leopards came by. It was an uncanny situation for somebody coming from Berlin and having, having never been in touch before with any wilderness. But we had been asked, we had been informed by Krüg, whom we met and who took us down and who gave us the permission to settle in the Gorogoro crater, which is not allowed to live there. Yes? He said to us, there are only three very dangerous ones. Does Nason, the Rhino, rhinoceros, the elephant and the buffalo, the buffalo. When they come, accelerate the car. Okay, that was all we got to know. And we have been at that tent. I had never before built up a tent, neither Dieter Grossmann. <laughs> and I said to Krieg, where are the hyenas? He said, they are living in clans, families, clans around here, all over the place. I said, please show one to me. And he took his binoculars, took his binoculars, and he said, there are about 20, they are trying to get a piece of a zebra 
which is occupied by a lion. I said, where? I took my own binocular, I couldn't see it. I got desperate. I said, how can I make a production on hyenas when I can't even see them? And then he said, now look into that direction, a little bit to the right, a little bit to the left. And then I saw in long distance one big spot like a fly. That was a zebra, on top of it the lion, and around it little spots like fleas, the hyenas. That's my dog. You have a dog here? Yes. Where? <laughs> oh, I didn't know this before. Oh, what's his name? Paula. Oh, it's her. Okay. What am I trying to explain to you? Yes, how to recall that. Okay? When the day is shading off and the darkness comes, a hyena gets up very slowly indeed. It stretches the legs and then it begins to move in a leisurely speed and then they are beginning to meet. Suddenly there's a second one, a fourth one, a sixth one and I'm sitting in the Land Rover. And the Land Rover is not on a road, it's in the field, okay? And I'm supposed to chase the hyena when it is hunting. So how to do that? The bamboo pole on top of the car, in the direction of the car, with the end of the bamboo pole in front of the car on top of the lights. So I have a flexibility because at that end are the mic, the two mics, okay? And the rubber foam, foam rubber, is thickly round the bamboo pole so I don't get the vibration. It would have been absolutely impossible to make recordings without the bamboo poles and the foam. Okay, I have a second bamboo pole on the hood in front of the car where the engine is in there. And at this end is another set of microphones but pointed down between the two lights, rubbed into foam again, you see? So I was, let me say, a driving microphone. Now the hyenas begin to move and you follow a troop, being an amateur, let me say, the biggest group I'm following with my heavy car behind them. Seven hyenas are moving. Suddenly there are only six, five, four. Always one is disappearing and then you have to make a decision. Do you try to follow the one, or do you stick to the majority? Of course, you stick to the majority, and at last, it's one hyena left. And that one hyena goes to sleep in front of your car. 
So we have to wait. It's absolutely dark. And now comes the torture. To stay awake for hours and your eyes are hurting to look at the hyena. So we had shifts. Always one minute the one and then one minute the other. We had a little torch on top of the roof pointed at the sleeping hyena and one was sitting in the car having an eye on her. When does she get up? Yes? When do we have to follow her? Now it happens, Teresa. This hyena listens to the news, to the news of the Afri African night. It sleeps there, but you see the ears, like radar, yes? The ears, like radar, are listening what's going around. Suddenly, that hyena gets up and dashes off. And now you have to catch that split of a second. We lost it very often because it was too fast. And that hyena goes across the field, passing dentures. And I have a heavy car. I can't fly suddenly. Yes? So whenever I arrived somewhere, it was over. What happens? <clears throat> that sleeping hyena mostly is a female hyena. Among the hyenas, the females are dominant, much more important than the males. They are heavier, and hyenas have enormous teeth. They can even crack a skull. So they are really dominant animals, and not just carcass eaters. So the production was a revolution, a new perspective on hyenas. And the females don't hunt because they are too big and maybe even a bit too fat because they are too dominant. But the males are slim and fast. So my hyenas sleeping in front of the car listening to the news has been a female. And when it hears somewhere that the kill is happening, a kill is always an acoustical inferno because a hyena, the first hyena that catches a prey, don't, doesn't stop it. It begins immediately to eat it. It's still alive. It's still running and they are already trying to pull it into pieces to get a share. And this fight for the animal is accompanied by a wild concert of shouts. <laughs> Enormous. And this you hear across the African night. And immediately our female hyena gets up and dashes for it. Yes? So when the female hyena appears at the carcass, the carcass is already covered by other hyenas. You can't see the carcass anymore. Maybe 20 hyenas, the complete clan, the complete family. <coughs> so the female jumps on top of it. Oh, very deep volume. <laughs> 
menacing. Nobody dares, yes, to be aggressive to her. And she thinks down in the middle on the carcass and begins to eat. So, I come to the point now, I'm getting lost in the story. You look, I look for an item, if the energy in it is so strong, like looking for oil in the Arabian desert. Just an image. In the Arabian desert, I took a walking stick and put it into the soil and oil comes out. So strong, a subject has to be. Yes? For me. Then I go for it. Well, And of course, if I say strength of the subject, it means the topical value and the dimension of sound in it. Okay? But what you need now, what you need now, I give you the, the line of development, what you need now, the, the English radio feature or the first great chapter of development of the radio feature finished after the death of Lawrence Gillian. After that, the radio feature went with its journalistic side to talks, T-R-L-K-S, talks, current affairs, and the artistic one to radio drama. It was split. So that power of belonging together was interrupted. And the outstanding personality didn't exist anymore. The next chapter, the European chapter of radio feature, happened in Germany. We had lost the war, and already one day after the war had been finished, the British troops have been in Hamburg. And they brought a new understanding of radio to Germany. The informative value and not the propaganda value as in the Third Reich. Okay? And they introduced in Hamburg to the new station just shaped after 24 hours the radio feature. They brought it with them. Of course, we had documentaries in Germany as well in the 20s, but single bits. And immediately after Hitler came into power in 33, everything was finished that was not supporting the Third Reich, as you can imagine. You know that like it is happening a bit in Croatia now, yes? Yeah. <laughs> so, we had in Germany the British radio feature, <clears throat> what to do with it. And the first four, we call them the four musketeers. Have you ever heard about that, the four musketeers? Alfred Anders, Axel Eggebrecht, Ernst Schnabel, Peter von Zahn. They have survived the war as soldiers. For example, Schnabel was captain of a war boat. Von Zahn 
was a reporter of the war. They came to Hamburg like people after a storm in the sea, being thrown out. They landed in Hamburg by accident or being looked for by the British officers like Egebrecht because he had a good reputation having been against Hitler and whatsoever. And these four started with a radio feature in Germany in 45. Well, your, one of the most important features of yours are Bells in the Year, 73. What was after that? Because, you know, it's 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, but still people, you know, in connection with you, they talk about Bells in Europe, hyenas and chickens. What was next? I just make one step to bridge. After the four musketeers in Hamburg, we had, after they have died, we had a period of stagnation, a very conventional understanding of radio features, just text, sound almost didn't exist, and if so, in a very traditional way, come in, something like that, or a tiny bit of music, so the radio feature has been script, script, script. And when I started radio feature, it was my aim to write as beautiful as possible, elegant. So we have been, if you, if you like to say so, documentarian novelists, yes? And these scripts were voiced, were read by speakers, not by us. So what happened? The script has a certain individuality. It's me in there. But the official voice in front of the microphone is just a voice. So there is the decisive, the decisive energy is lost. The energy of the individuality of something. Yes? I always compared them with suits and ties. In front of the mic, there is a suit with a tie, an official voice, reading a text. That was a radio feature. Of course, it's not only one voice. You had speaker one, speaker two, speaker three. You had a quotation, yes, many roads. But basically, it was a script being read by different voices with some little elements of, the key word is illustration, yes? And that means like in a newspaper article, one photo, an illustration, just from time to time. So you had, that's important to understand, so you had a main actor in each feature, the word, the spoken word, and you had a little helping actor with a bit of sound, with a bit of music. So it was disbalanced in value. And now Brown came into the picture with his understanding of 
the energy of acoustic sequences. And Brown tries to raise the value of the acoustic expression and to reduce the proportion of words in each production. Okay? I come back to the understanding of stereo. Stereo in the early days was a recording technique, nothing else. And now stereo becomes a new technique of expression, of expression. I can express things much stronger and much more different, okay? I can get closer to my audience. I can pull them through the loudspeakers into my story, being part of it, okay? So I need some revolutions now. Firstly, I need that no professional voice is taking over. And if so, it should only speak in a way that is very close to the will of the writer. And so, production after production, I put the two actors, the word and the sound, into an equal balance, and at last, the sound took over. And this was the acoustical film. Not one word of scripted text in it anymore. Yes? And so, in the chicken, I have a proportion of 50% of text, 50% of sound, okay? And I reduce it more and more with each and the last one, where I have no written text in it anymore, is the hip replacement, the operation. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Hip replacement. There you have just the doctors speaking, doing the operation, you have the statements by the patient, the old lady who is waiting to have a better life, and you have the acoustical protocol. The doctors, during the operation, speaks into a machine, and that is the acoustical film. That was the end of that development. Okay? Okay. So, but what did you do after that? Because that was 73 or 74, something like that? I did only one production after that, and that was The Bells. So, and then after Bells in Europe? And The Bells was a desire of mine to make one feature like an opera, so to speak, singing parts, and The Bells, and the text, and... But to explain this would be too much now. Except you want to know that. If you know, if you can keep it short somehow. <laughs> it's another step of expression. Going into the foundry. A foundry is a place where a bell is made. I record a vocabulary of sound. So I'm in that foundry. Nobody else is in there except my sound engineer, Dieter Grossmann and we tape doors, chains, tools, not knowing what to do with them. I have a supply of acoustic expressions, not knowing 
what my story will be. Okay? Of course, I record the the oven with this 1,000 grades or whatsoever. But I have to come now to the birth, that's the first idea, the birth of a bell, when it is born. And the bell is born when the metal goes into the mould, okay? The mould is a very complicated piece of craftsmanship. If the mould is not correct, the bell will never sound. And so I'm in that foundry now, taking all these noises, like a little archive of my own, and in the morning, the cast of the bell. And the cast of the bell is that the boiling metal is going into the mould, and in the mould there is air. And because the metal is so hot, the air has to go out. Yes? Dieter Grossmann, my sound engineer, goes as close to the mould as possible, his rubber foams is a little bit burning already. Yes? So he gets... It doesn't speak, it's just one. So all the morning, we record one bell after the other. Now I get the composition, okay? Now I build up a story, the preparation in the foundry. Then in the morning the priest is coming and he's giving the blessing before they cast the bell. Then you get the bubbling, then you get the hiss, and out of the last hiss I get out a beautiful bell. Boom. Boom. Yes, but I have to slow it down, the bell. I can't take a real bell because it would be too realistic. And so you hear that and you feel now it has been born and you can hear it, okay? One story of the bells, so to speak, the monologue, the, uh, the prologue, the prologue. And the second story of the bells is its use for war. For centuries, bells have been used for war because a bell is made of copper and tin that gives bronze. And the first guns have been made of bronze. So already in the 15th, 16th century, they started to convert bells into guns because you couldn't win a war anymore without guns. And guns have been so expensive. So how to get a gun? Take a bell. Convert it. Beautiful story. So the bells became guns. And after the war, if I, if I did win, and God might, might be angry with me, I take a couple of guns 
and they are converted into bells again. Yes? But now let's imagine uh, Teresa in her city and she is used to her bell and that bell is taken and converted into ammunition. Ammunition is very expensive material. Bells are good for that. Teresa is becoming a soldier and the ammunition of her own bell is shooting her. Beautiful story. Yes? So I had another chapter of telling that. This, these productions have been big steps of development. Radio history. Because each of them was opening a new gate of possibilities. And the bells are to think in sound, to compose in sound. Yes? There was only one idea for the bell production I had from the very beginning. I was in love with a Bavarian woman. And I was married with a French woman I couldn't like, I didn't like. And she was engaged. And we met secretly in Switzerland, in Zurich, okay? And in the morning in Zurich, Zurich is shaped like that, and there's a river down there called the Limmat. And each Saturday morning, all bells of Zurich are tuning together. And then you are like in a ocean of sounding bells. And it was a great feeling for me in the right partnership. Yes, and then that enormous ocean of sound around me. And I had the idea, I make Europe sound together. That was the only idea I had when I started for my bell production. And this idea didn't work. Why? Because each bell is a very precise instrument, tuned differently. They do not sound together, except they are in one tower and they are tuned in relation to each other. But if I take now the big bell of Cologne and the one of Warszawa and the one of its cacophony, so we had a beautiful production ready and all felt now we are doing that grandiose finale. And it was a disaster. Whatever we tuned together, it was ugly and wrong. So what did we do? We reduced it and didn't make them sound together, but after the other, only linking a little bit, because even then you could hear, yes? So it was a bluff. It was a great idea, which became a bluff. Okay, what did I do afterwards? Before I started to make the big pioneer things, I had traveled Germany from station to station, and at each station I had asked them to give to me the most interesting programs. Okay? It was nothing that thrilled me. 
great subjects, but traditional making. Then I decided I traveled to the Pritaya. In Pritaya, there should be more. There comes together the crop of the world. There must be the challenging pieces. And I arrived in the Pritaya, and you know, in the listening room, I was the only person. Just me. That was the interest in radio features. Just me. Nevertheless, I listened to a production very interesting by Witold Sadrowski in Warsaw. I made a German version of it, The Death of an Elephant. And now comes the beautiful image. I had the feeling I'm at the edge of the ocean. The ocean is the medium of radio, okay? I'm standing on the, at the coast, at the edge, on a cliff, in darkness. I don't know anybody, it's just me with an idea. But outside, in the night, I see these little lights of distant ships. And I thought, I have to find these other lights. And so I did. And that was the beginning of the feature conference. Me finding the passionates. And we had Yugoslavia at that time, in Ochrit, Macedonia, Ochrit, Lake Ochrit, you know that? Mm -hmm. We had a conference organized by OERT. Now, you know what EBU is? Mm -hmm. At that time, we had the Western EBU and the Eastern OERT. Okay? And the OERT had invited to Ochrit the functionaries of the East and had invited me to present stereotechnique. Okay, and in Ochit I met two other persons. I met from Belgium Andries Poppe and from Sweden Oke Blomström. And the three of us have been like atoms belonging to each other. We made click immediately and we understood the situation and we decided to start a development. And a couple of years later, many, many stories in between, we had the first feature conference in Berlin. This first conference was very difficult to organize. Why? Because the feature people have been the beggars, the clochards of the trade. Most of them had no department, no budget, just the talent. So I had to try to collect the talents and not the functionaries. That was the point. And I persuaded, I persuaded our general manager to exclude the EBU because you couldn't make an international gathering without the EBU. I said, we don't 
Asi, if you were to participate, that was really something, yes, to bring it to their minds. Secondly, I said, I have to avoid, if I send out an invitation of the first <coughs> international feature meeting, that the functionaries are coming. I do not want the heads of departments. If they are heads of departments and they have not made a revolution up to they are wrong. So I persuaded my station that we, I, so to speak, invite them individually. Yes? We pay for them the, the flight. No. I have somewhere here the figure. It was enormously inexpensive. They got, they got 32 euros, 32 Deutschmark okay. for the day, for eating, and they got 37 Deutschmarks for the hotel. But this made them independent. Because now they could say to their boss, I got that invitation, I'm covered. And they could come and be the right person, okay? The chefs always try to get in, but the, let me say, at least the first 12 conferences, each second one always, I made in Berlin, and I was very strict always. We had only one lighthouse from Norway that was a functionary, but all the rest have been makers, real makers. So. The first conference of feature, and I give you a paper later on where you can read it and you have my permission to use it for your thesis. Okay? I'm just telling you now something to put you on fire. We have been a couple, a dozen persons, and if you need a photo of that first conference, I can give it to you. That would be great. Okay? Yeah. And the list of participants. Oh, that would be amazing. Actually, all these materials, if you have any. Okay. Firstly, to listen, what are we able to produce? So each person brought an ordinary feature and an outstanding one. That was the first aim. The second aim was to clarify what is our situation. No independent budget, no staff, no access to a sophisticated studio. Yes? Things like that. And number three was, how can we cooperate to bring things forward? That was the first conference about three days. And from that on it worked. They immediately had the final decision in one year ago, the next conference again in Berlin, yes? And then it moved, yes? And we had, let me say, firstly, we supported each other. I'm doing a feature in Sweden. I'm calling Oke Blomström. I sent over so-and-so, please, of course, gets all the help over there. And a network. 
yes, and not only a professional, personal network as well. It was an expression of professional friendship and co-production and cooperation. It was enormous, that click. That's why I have all these old photos here still hanging, yes, mm -hmm. of these, let me say, big persons in the history. And the thing enlarged now. We followed exactly what in each country was happening and the best productions we took in our own program making versions of it. And I developed even for sophisticated acoustical productions, does Mutterband verfahren, the mother track procedure. Okay? So it was well looked after. And so if somebody came up with an important piece, it traveled into other countries. We looked for that ourselves. That's the point. Ourself, ourself, ourself. And not asking somebody, please, could you? We are doing it. And then we put our money together. Even a bunch of beggars together, yes, can afford to send somebody to the moon if it is necessary and if it is the right, per right person. And, <clears throat> or for example, from your country, Swanimir Baisic, is that a name for you? Well, is he Czech? Oh, sorry. No. From, from your name, the first one was... No, Buczek was a later one. There is Buczek. Second one from the left. Yeah. Yes? In this stage of development, we are in the early development of the features now. I was traveling countries. And I was jumping into my car and I was, I was going to Prague. And I was not welcome in Prague. That poor, soldiers in front of the station, yes? Nobody really wanted to talk to me. And there was, I give you the name during our interview, I have forgotten the name. He's dead for many years now, but he said I would like to talk to him. And I went to in, into his office. I mean, Prague, it's a beautiful building. Yes, that's Jugendstil at its best. Huh? And if you walk the corridors, the doors, with the chrome, the handles, if you go there next, you must really see it. It's a beauty. So I was talking to him and he turned out to be somebody looking cross borders. He knew a bit what was going on. He was immensely interested to get to know more from me and to stay in contact with me, which was dangerous for him. I was the one from the West and they had I think in East Berlin they had a big gathering of radio people and there I was being spoken about in a kind of a presentation 
as the most evil one from the capitalistic side. So I was almost an enemy. I was somebody not being seen with. And then, at that time, I had a Mercedes car. I had an accident almost in front of the broadcasting house. A Czech car, which even at that time was running in high speed along the roads, I can tell you. And it was a little bit of snow on the road. And he couldn't brake his car. He couldn't slow it down enough. So he banged at last a bit in my, into my car. And then he claimed it was me being bumping him. So I needed help. So I went to my Czech, to my new Czech friend, and I asked him, would you dare to go together with me to the police station and to translate for me? Tick, 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 tick. And then he said, I come with you. Then we have been friends. How did you decide who will you invite to IFC from all these countries? If if there was somebody with interesting work, and uh, in in Prague there has been no interesting work at that time, it was an absolutely traditional understanding how to make a radio documentary. One point. Second point was, it must not be critical in any way. Yes, I give you a splendid, and and that's why, why. Yes, and even if I would have invited them, they would have not been allowed to come to the enemy. At that time, we had from the eastern side Hungary, one of the very early partners of mine. We had Poland, at least after Solidarność, after the revolution, but with Witold Sadrowski even before, again very dangerous for him, he had to leave the country, yes? And the best example to explain to you the difference is the Germans, East Germany and West Germany. So let me say we meet each other in Ochet. We speak to each other. And we arrive now together at Berlin Airport. In Yugoslavia, they still talk to, to, to me. In the very same second, touchdown in Berlin, I'm, so to speak, invisible. I do not exist. Nobody even looks at me anymore, of my East German colleagues. Yes? And then I did the following. Like, I drove to Prague, I drove to East Berlin to German radio in East Berlin. Yes, the surgeons was gone in front of him. I say to them, I'm from West Berlin radio. I would like to talk to my colleagues. Dead silence. Dead silence. Lot of telephone calls. All of them saying they are in meetings, no chance and whatsoever. Nobody talked to me. In Prague, somebody talked to me. Not in East Berlin. Nobody dared. But the East Berlin colleagues arrived after some years at the feature conference. And now I explain it to you. Let me say 
they are doing, I remember that, a production on a village which has to disappear because the coal mines are taking over the grounds. You understand that? Okay? In any normal production, you would now hear, it's horrible, my fathers and grandfathers have been living here, I shall fight for that place forever. In the East German production, you will hear, it's very important that the socialistic economy gets more coal, etc. So, the production is fine until it comes to the border of the critical point, and then it turns to be a lie. And that's why, you, for, for many years, you didn't get any outstanding production coming out of, let me say, strongly regulated Eastern countries. Poland and Hungary was the first one. But in Hungary you had that revolution, and in Poland you had Gdansk, Solidarność, you had Janina Jankowska, oh, you don't know her, okay. Was there any year when you was almost sure that the IFC will not happen because of some problems, because of some, no. I know? No. The IFC had the luck always to have as a spare tire to be capable to fall back to Berlin. Yes? So, starting 75 in Berlin, next year, first one in Vienna, Berlin again. Stockholm, Ockeblomström, back in Berlin, you see? So we enlarged more and more, but we had always the security, if something goes wrong, it can go back to Berlin. And so after, let me say, 12 years, we didn't have any desire anymore for Berlin. It went to Sydney, to Toronto, and whatsoever, yes? It became bigger and bigger. And why did you decide to, you know, to move it to another city every year? Like Because it was my interest to develop features. And features must not be a local or regional or national event. Then it is not strong enough. Because you don't have enough talents. Yes? Talents are always rare. And now I come back to a former point when I said, You have to decide what you are made for. Is it your visual talent or is it your acoustical talent? But now you are asked to be good in TV, good in radio, and good in online. And that is an illusion. Yes? If you have seen how long it takes to develop yourself and to be really good in one line, But me, for example, with my three TV films, it's not me. My wife here, the boss of, of, of Prior Europa, Susanne Hoffmann, she is, a, she is seeing things with one glance immediately. The same what I am with my ears. She is with the eyes. If that's the point, if the program is very simple indeed. Then you can do it for TV, 
for radio and online. If it becomes more sophisticated, if if, if a additional proportion of, of, of talent is needed, then it's one medium and that's it. Look, online is an absolutely different language. Yes? There are people, writers, they can't make short stories. It's a high art. Alice Munro, you know the name? The Canadian. Short story. Hemingway, short story. There are people with these books, it flows out of them by itself. Online is like a telegram language. Very often not even complete sentences anymore. Yes? To use it as a powerful tool, it's a different virtue. Yes, if it is very simple what you are doing, let me say you are doing a piece on a tomato, then you can make a film version out of it, you can make a radio version of it with a view, and you can put it together online. But I doubt if there is coming up that outstanding person being capable to cover everything. And if so, now comes the point, it's a single person but it's not a crew in an additional dimension to make a program of one year, something like that. Do you get what I say? Coming back, because that's important what I'm explaining, it's basic lines of understanding. I'm comparing now a radio feature department with a pub. There is a host, he is behind the bar and he is serving the beer and whatsoever. And in front are the tables with the guests. And in front of the bar you have the high stools for the drinkers. Yes? And with my best sellers of production, enormous. 15, 16 languages, sometimes 500 broadcasts across the world. Yes? I have been the best guest of the bar in the feature department of Berlin. Okay? I understood our complete program for one year. Let me say 100 broadcasts. One or two big shots. Ten quite good. Masses of mediocre value. And then I thought... I have to go behind the bar to raise the overall level. Not to have that anymore, but to have a plateau. That's why I went. I was really earning a lot of money as a bestseller guy. And I didn't want to go on staff. And here, our GD, our general director, tried to tempt me because I was such a successful guy, etc. And he said, I remember that he was sitting in front of me and he had a newspaper. And on the edge of the newspaper, he was counting what he was offering me. It was the highest, highest level 
And not the first step, but the third step. And it was something of 3,000 so-and-so much Deutschmarks. And I said to him, this I need almost in two months. And he was shocked. And then they said to me, we have that position now reserved for you. And we give you the permission. You can continue to do your outstanding productions, but you are becoming head of the department also. And you could continue to make your investigations. I was experimenting with Kunstkopftechnik in a balloon and whatsoever. I got the golden contract as an offer. And I didn't want to give up my freedom. I was not hungry. Yes, I was not anxious. I was very successful. I was fancying myself as poop. And then after three years, I gave in on one condition. I signed a contract for one year, not more. One year. I said that I can get out again. And that was forever. I became the host and I was immediately trying to attract new talents, not in Berlin, yes? Finding one there, finding one there, yes? Writing for us and then out of making out of maybe 80 productions, I had almost 200 per year, yes? And my 55 producers traveling the world in that international network, it was big, it was a movement. We didn't have the outstanding things anymore done by me, but other ones did outstanding things and more. So the step was, yes, to get off that best guest of a pub into a pub with, which was more flourishing in quality. Okay? So you must understand that. It might be a point in your thesis. The, the spread out demand of quality in many media is only possible if it is linked to simple demands of programmings, but not if there is a radio piece written by an écrivain, etc. Okay? Okay. So, how many productions at all did you have you created? Like, how many how many features? Like yourself. So I've mentioned five or six now, the radio history pieces, but before that I have done maybe 20, 30, which are remarkable by, by style. Mm -hmm. I fancied myself to be a stylist, and when I had written a script with a beautiful passage in it, <clears throat> I felt fulfillment. Yes? I didn't understand the medium I was working for at that time. I was just trying to be a good writer. So and why did you stop producing like yourself? 
after both of you Because I was head of the department with all these possibilities to make production and whatsoever. But in the very same second, I stopped it immediately because me doing a production is less important than you doing a production and getting a development. So I have a limited amount of productions per year. And I am not taking away chances from other people. Yes? I have to build something up. I have to give chances. I have to give developments and not <clears throat> being on a kind of a throne of possibilities. I never did again. Never. Yeah. So, and you didn't have that tension to do it because, you know, people, authors, they have this tension to do it. No, sometimes it happens. And in the history of features, we have several examples that outstanding makers became outstanding managers. Yes? But not very often. Mostly program people are not talented for managing. Back, back to IFC. So, was, what, what is actually the, like the first year of IFC? Because somewhere it's written it's 74 or 73, now you said 75. Uh, what, from which year it's counting as like proper IFC? Is it like 75 was the first year? First. 75. 75. 75, yes. Now let's see the first IFC. Somewhere here I have a text for you. Here it is. This I give to you. This I have written in Amsterdam 1999. Mm -hmm. The genesis of the International Feature Conference. Okay, I don't read it to you. 74 was a meeting in Ochid, and the first feature conference was in 75. And to explain to you the situation, me in Berlin, like a spider in the cobweb. You know what a spider is? Mm -hmm. Yes? With international connections. But just me. It was me and Hungarian radio. Or to phrase it a bit better, it was Berlin and Warsaw. It was, and because of our outstanding productions, I got each year delegations. I got them from BBC. BBC came to Berlin to get information how we are doing that. <laughs> BBC London, Helsinki. Ule, CBC Toronto, MR Budapest, BRT Brasil, Stockholm, Basel, Zagreb, Copenhagen, they all came to Berlin, of course also invited by me, but I had bilaterale connections. It was just Berlin and one other place. And what was my aim with the international feature? To link all of them. Yes? I mean, what does it mean, Berlin? That's me and Klaus Lindemann, two persons and two secretaries and many independent producers. That's nothing. Yes? And to, in, on top of all our work, all these relations, but now, 
to bring them together. That was a big bang. You see the difference? Suddenly, it was not a star anymore with the center. Suddenly, it was a network. Became. I need more tea now. Yeah, okay. Oops. So, how would you uh, call the re relationship between people on IFC? Do you think it's like friendship or is it love? <laughs> what is it? It's a mixture. It's a mixture. And in that paper I have here for you, first is the Genesis and then I have written a little one 30 years later. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, it's already 30 years old. And then 30 years almost in each center of radio it had happened, in Zagreb twice. How does it live? Why? It's not only the professional relationship, it's the personal binding, the personal bonds as well, the belonging. It's a family somehow, yes? Of course now the family, you have, you have been in, where have you been, in Vienna? In Vienna and Lublin. And in Lublin, you see, it's not so close anymore like in the beginning, yes? And each year there are many new faces coming in and they get <clears throat> into a fertile situation. If they are interested, they get cooperation immediately, yes? And we have the Okoblomström. Uh, training program, etc. So, it's not cold, it's warm. It's personal. Of course you must be capable to, to look for it. Yes? And that is the miracle. That is the center explanation of it. That it is a network of professional and personal cooperation. Yes? And you know, there's somebody coming up in Sweden now. I know his work. And I'm sitting in the Prioroba as well. And I'm getting from all over Europe, once a year, the interesting work. So, I'm like a headhunter. Yes? So, and did you feel uh, during these years, because now it's 43 years or something? Uh, 43, the, 43 years. years. Did you feel somehow that people of IFC are getting old? Or, you of know, course. Were there any, I don't know, stereotypes? Of or course, something? of like course. They are dying. They are, all these people are dead, except the women. The women are living from the very beginning. Lorelei, mm -hmm. yes, she is retiring this year. Barbro, even older. Kay Mortley. Men die, women live forever, obviously. And was it any change to IFC when these people... Of course, started? of course. How, how, how it, you know... But there are, look, now Sylvia Lana from Vienna takes over. Yes? And she has been linked to the IFC for many years. She has, so to speak, the intoxication in her blood. So she is the right person. 
And now you get a new chapter of development. And then I come to my um, remark of the beginning when we talked about Lawrence Gilliam, BBC. Each thing, each culture, and the radio feature is a culture in the, of the media, will have an end. 43 years is enormous. So maybe they make it 50. Next year it will be in Prague, the feature conference. Eva will do it. And yes, it's like, you know what a baton is? Staffellauf. There is one race where you run four persons, each person a certain sequence, handing over the baton to the next one. You know that? I don't know the English word for Staffellauf. Uh, in Czech it's Staffelta. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's, it's similar. Yeah. So the button is handed over. Yes? Now René, in the middle there, in Paris, the only one next to me from the very beginning is dying. Some weeks to live. Binchy, the Chinese, Very great in Beijing for the features. Good work. He has died already, etc. <clears throat> But after Binchi is Li Hong in Beijing, a fanatic in features. Yes? So it goes on. And if it doesn't go on anymore one day, then it's over. <clears throat> But up to now, it's surprisingly strong. I explained it to you because it's not only the professional passion to make good quality, but it's because you have a belonging. Like it is again and again discovered how important the bondings of a family is and how dangerous it is that people are losing their family relations more and more and end up as being a single. The human being is not made to live as a single. Yes? It's not easy to be a single. What do you think, what would happen if you didn't create the IFC or if you didn't bring stereophonics here? It, 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 it wouldn't exist in this form, in other forms. Yes? I th really do think, I know, I know that this, let me say, beginning of a pioneer, I mentioned our Lance Sieviking in London, or Val Gilgit, or Lawrence Gilliam, etc., these key persons of development, or in the beginning, after the war in Hamburg, with the four musketeers, yes? They are key persons. And then <clears throat> the development takes a new direction. And This new direction might be kept for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, but one day it will be over. It's like life. Yes? And do you think that somehow if the feature conference would die someday, could it be possibly the end of the feature? No, you will always need documentarian <coughs> programming. That's becoming more and more important. 
Life is very complex and very complicated. It's almost impossible for a normal person to understand what's going on in the world. I just say one word, the rapid online development, the Internet. What's going on there in Silicon Valley is being understood maybe by 100 persons. It's enormous how this will change the world which is not meant to develop in such a speed. And the more complex these things are, for example, economic correlations, the more you need informative journalism, the more you need captivating forms of journalism. Yes? So the documentary is a kind of a daily bread of information. And if the daily bread from time to time becomes a cake or a piece even of tart, yes, or a petit four, great. As long as we understand it's a bakery feature conference, including many forms and not excluding, you see? So you might know might know, might now ask, where does the feature begin? Where does it end? It begins. It begins. What I have explained to you. Rather fast behind the news. That's a borderline. But you see, behind the news, if you take a simple reportage, is that a feature? Not yet. A commentary, is that a not yet, yes? It's a very blurred field of correlation. But if very different elements are combined <clears throat> into a construction of information, then it becomes a feature. It be can be a simple feature, and it can be a highly developed feature. I'm coming to that. And the other borderline is, let me say, to theater, to radio drama. Yes? But even there, in radio drama, they are using many elements of feature production. And the feature production is using scenes, monologues, and whatsoever of... So, somehow, yes, it's not a controlled border. It's a lot of cross-border traffic. And somehow it's unnecessary to define when does it start, when does it end. And the discussion about what is a feature and what's not a feature, we even did forbid it in the feature conference for many years to discuss is that a feature or not. Yes? What is... So, such so enormous it's a feature. First, virtue. Flexibility, versatility, adaptability. To adapt to new forms. Yes, not to be rigid, not to be stiff. Yes, a good boxer is moving all the time. It's not like a tower. A tower collapses. 
Here is one paper, The Genesis of the International Feature Convention, that's in English. And here is in German, if you are interested in that, then you must find somebody to translate it to you. For example, Anna nach Milnerova. Mm -hmm. This is Der Ohrenzeuge. Der Augenzeuge, in English, is the eye witness. And this is called the ear witness. That's me. One, almost 100 year of radio feature. I'm starting with uh, the early BBC in that article, okay? Mm -hmm. Always very short. Yeah. And prob I think very helpful for you to get the basic lines, mm -hmm. not to drown. Yeah. Yes? Mm -hmm. Radio feature is like an ocean. And here are the big lines. Great, great. And in German, you call it feature or you call it documentary? We call it both. Both. Because we check, it's a big topic, because uh, they call it documentary, actually. And people don't call it feature. And when you call it feature, people are kind then of... Then give, the, the give up the expression feature and stick to documentary. And is there any... Uh, no. Difference? Okay. In the beginning, it might have been felt that the documentary being made of documents is a bit more realistic, but the feature is an historical expression I explained to you, yeah. coming out of the United Kingdom and being taken into many languages, but having lost the original meaning. The original meaning, I remind you of Lance Sieviking, was just to feature something to make it bigger, to make it larger, to make it more attractive, to make it more connecting. Yes? So once I called a feature the prostitute of radio. Church radio makes feature. Women radio makes feature, but always using it for their own purposes. So let me say, the great feature is prostituted somehow in simple forms, yes? If you translate it into cooking, the great feature can be like a great restaurant, refined cooking, but it can be fast food also, yes? And many departments just need fast food. So let's make fast food. Another thing, for example, in, in Scandinavia, we had a different name for features that was more linked to sound, etc. In the uh, United Kingdom, they tend to call it documentary and features at the same time. So, so to speak, the old expression features is still equivalent but documentary is used at the same time, simultaneously. Yeah. Don't make it a big thing. Yeah, well, yeah, I know, but, uh, you know, Andrea Hanachkova, who is supposed to come here with me, she already did this big uh, study about feature and about the difference between documentary and feature. And, uh, what so for? What for? Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. But what for? 
Yeah, so that's the, yeah, you know, that's, that was the thing I wanted to not discuss with you, but ask you, because, you know, if people should, you know, recognize that it's something different or... I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm fighting Look, in Pre-Europa, I don't call it feature, I call it radio documentary. For one reason only. Documentary is internationally better understood. Feature, still in some countries, is a rather unknown expression. For example, like in your country. And then you make, you get headache for the, for the wrong thing. And now I might not call it anymore radio doc, I might call it audio doc. Because the medium of radio is not radio anymore alone, it's podcast and whatsoever. So even the expressions will have a development. Okay, well I'm, I'm <coughs> thinking if to continue now, or do you have some time tomorrow? Yes. Yeah, so probably... But I propose to you, we switch it now off. I had one point I wanted, maybe I get it. I wanted to say to you, hmm, it will come back. This afternoon with Bauernfeind, we have talked today, the two of us, about the feature in general, especially the artistic feature. The feature in the highest possibility of expression. Bauernfeind is very important indeed for the journalistic feature. Yes? So let him talk about subjects, issues, okay? He was my successor when I, I handed over the department in Berlin to him. And he immediately went for the importance of the content. I was more for the importance of the form. But he might be very important for you to... You are like a bird and your wings should be equally developed. And you have the artistic feature and you have the journalistic feature. Now let him... And tomorrow I would suggest to you that we meet at 11. Mm-hmm. If that is okay for you, yeah. and then you come with the questions which came into your mind after you have talked to him, and thinking about these, and here you have these two sheets of paper. Yeah. It's very good for your thesis because you can even copy them and you can even use them as your own words, okay? And not writing each time it's by me, etc. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but yeah, great. So thank you very much. Yes. Um, and yeah, I will put it here.